It was God's purpose that Israel's descendants, those to whom Moses was writing, would fulfill God's purpose according to his choice, not of Esau, but of Jacob. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to come and to meet with your people, to study your word, and this morning we thank you that your word is sufficient. We've heard many vain and empty promises this week. Many of them have not come to pass, but we come to your word this morning, which is faithful and true. And these promises are yes and amen in Christ. This week we have been exposed to many lies, but we thank you that we are sanctified in the truth and that your word is truth. We've often been tempted to turn to other sources for satisfaction and direction when your word is a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. Lord, we may have been drawn this week to what is fleeting and temporal, but your word is eternal. And so this morning we ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive from your sufficient word for your glory, for our neighbor's good, and for our good pleasure. And we pray this in the name above every name, the name of Christ Jesus. We pray it, and those who agree said, amen. It was King Solomon who, ostensibly near the end of his life, said this in Ecclesiastes 7.1. He said, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, Solomon was not writing this after having a bad day. He wasn't grumpy. He wasn't downcast. He wasn't listening to Adele when he wrote these words. Rather, Solomon was getting the point across that the the day of our birth, as we're given a new name, uh, has yet to prove what sort of life will be associated with that name. We don't know yet. On the day of birth, your birth, your entire life is actually ahead of you. And time will tell who you turn out to be. Some names, as we look through history, are associated with great wickedness, names like Adolf or Jezebel. Other names, at life's end, will communicate great wisdom, great faith, and righteousness that that person embodied, names like Abraham. Thus, the day of death is a day when your life is now behind you, and the verdict is in, the case is closed. History has been written, there's no more wondering. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, as we come to Genesis 25 and we study the death of Abraham, we can look back at his life and celebrate his as one of love, trust, and obedience in the covenant-keeping God. We've seen in our study, and it's been a little bit, uh, a few weeks actually, if not months, since we've seen the faith of Abraham as he offered up his son Isaac. But that wasn't the only moment of greatness in Abraham's life. Remember, he had followed God out from Ur of the Chaldees to the land that I would show you, Genesis 12.1. Remember, he set out from Haran, and he ended up settling and prospering in the land of Canaan. And there God promised to be his shield, his very great reward, Genesis 15.1. Remember, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be, whether you look up, they'll be like the innumerable stars, or you look down, it'll be as innumerable as the sand, and his own son would be his heir. It wouldn't come from his servant. Remember, Abraham was obedient to Yahweh, 
as he and his household were circumcised. And this is a picture of their consecration and their loyalty to God. We learn that when God revealed his promises to Abraham, Abraham in turn believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. We learn that Abraham was not justified by circumcision or the law, and this has been the case ever since. No one has ever been justified by outward obedience or by keeping the law, but by grace alone through faith alone. And we learn that from Abraham's life. So in this way, Abraham has become the father of all who put their trust in Yahweh. We learn in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, though Abraham was admirable, and we've learned a lot of things that can encourage us in our faith, he was far from perfect. We, we can study his life and we can emulate some things, but we can also, with any human, we can avoid some things. There were certainly flashes in Abraham's life which we wouldn't admit were his finer moments. Decisions that were prompted by the fear of man or a, singing, a seeming lapse or lack of faith. It seemed like any time he and Sarah, his wife, seemed to be away on holiday, he would try to pull a fast one and tell other people, uh, this is my sister. It seemed like that was his habit. He, he failed to fully wait upon God in the promise of a son. But remember, he went into Hagar, Sarah's servant, and she conceived Ishmael, who was wrought in the flesh. But in the end, after his body, the scripture says over and over, was as good as dead, his wife, Sarah, did conceive a son. And of course, after that son had grown up, Abraham obeyed God in that one final, seemingly insurmountable act of obedience, and he offered his only beloved son on an altar. And the writer of Hebrews recounts that Abraham did all of these acts of obedience by faith. Why? Because he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When we read a life like Abraham's, we might think, wow, he certainly earns the right to not die. And the reality is God's people are not immune to death. As we look back at Genesis chapter 3, man no longer lives in the garden. Adam and Eve have been created in the image of God to rule and to subdue the earth, to keep the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, and then build these communities which will bring glory to Yahweh, and we know what happens. Sadly, Adam falls in rebellion. He sins as he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as Roman, Romans 5 explains, this act of treason brings sin into the world, and because sin has entered the world, death also through sin. So even though uh, Abraham was righteous and he was very pleasing to Yahweh, he was still a sinner. He was still a descendant of Adam. He was in Adam. And thus, death would be a reality for Abraham as well. But see, in the midst of the curse, as we've also learned, God had promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and redeem what had been lost. God had promised to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. So the hope for God's people, born in Adam, would not be in Abraham because as we continue to read, Adam died, Noah died, and as we'll see today, Abraham died. The hope that we place our faith in is in a future son 
who perfectly submitted to God's law, who died as our substitute, who forever conquered sin and death. And the question that the reader would be wondering is, is that Isaac? Or perhaps it's one of Isaac's twin sons. Now, if we wanted to be creative or clever this morning, we may have selected the title for this morning's sermon as The Tomb, the Womb, and the Doom. The, <laughs> the Tomb of Abraham, the Womb of Rebekah, and the Doom of Esau. But instead, we're going to go with a simpler one, From One Generation to Another. And the reason we're going to go with that title is because here in Genesis 25, we see all three of the patriarchs, all within a few verses of one another. We see Abraham, we see Isaac, and we see his son, Jacob, along with Esau. And so as we study this, we're also going to get a sad foreshadowing as we look at these twin boys, Abraham's grandsons. And as we conclude the sermon later, we're going to receive communion as we do on the first of the month, and we'll celebrate together at the Lord's table. If you're taking notes, though, this morning, three things we're going to look at from the text. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 18, we're going to see that in Adam all die. And I just want to commend Nick for a great job reading those names. I will not be repeating those names. We're just going to assume he got them all right. We're going to also look in the second section, verses 19 through 28, that in the womb and out of the womb, God is sovereign. Amen? And then we'll finally see that in the flesh, as we get a picture of this in Esau, our desires in Adam, in the flesh, lead to destruction. As wholesome as you believe they are, they will become disordered in Adam. So let's begin with verse 1. In the first section, we'll see the death of Abraham being reminded that in Adam all die. Verse 1 says, Abraham took another wife. It says her name was Keturah. Now let's not forget, it's been some time since Sarah, his wife, has died. And though Keturah bears Abraham six more sons, verse 5 is careful to point out that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the rightful heir to the promise. Now, these other men could certainly boast, like Isaac, that they were sons of Abraham. They could also, like Ishmael, walk into a room and boast, yes, Abraham is my father. I am a son of Abraham. But none of them, including Ishmael, could claim that they were the son of Yahweh's promise. See the difference? It was only through Isaac that the nation, the land, and the Messiah would come. Verse 6 says that Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, but they were, quote, sent away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country, end quote. Verse 6. And we said this before, but there seems to be a theme throughout Scripture that begins in Genesis of moving out away from God's presence east. Eastward seems to be outside of God's plan. Now, that's not exhaustive. If you moved east to Mayaka, uh, that does not mean you're sinning against God. Mayaka may be great, but that doesn't mean you're in rebellion uh, if you move out there. These other sons born to Abraham through Keturah do not receive the blessings that Isaac would receive, thus they're sent away. Stephen Cole says it this way. He says, the list of Abraham's sons through Keturah, several of whom grew into nations, shows the fulfillment of God's promise. Even though we don't recognize most of these names, Israel did. The existence of these nations was a demonstration to Israel that what God promises, he does. Verse 7 states, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 
175 years. You thought you were getting up there. 175 years. It says in verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And so as Abraham dies, the language Moses uses here in verse 8 uh, are instructive for us. First, it says he breathed his last and he died in a good old age. We know this, to breathe your last breath is to die, to leave this temporal world and to step into, to cross into eternity. We know God alone gives the breath of life and God sustains our lives and even our breath. You haven't been aware of the amount of breaths you've taken this morning, but God is sustaining the breath of life within you. So second, we also see here that he died, Moses says, as an old man and full of years. The NASB says Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. I like that. To be full of years means to live in such a way that you're not just expiring the clock every year, but you're living in a way that brings glory and honor to God and for his purposes. And it's the exact opposite of how the scripture depicts emptiness and vanity. So if you want to live a life that's significant, you live your life according to the purposes of God, and you will be satisfied with a full life, full of years. Well, finally, the text here says in verse 8 that he was gathered to his people. Now, that is not just a euphemism for death, like when we say grandpa is in a better place. Sometimes we aren't sure how to handle language with death. We soften the blow a little bit. We talked about that with Sarah's death. But this is one of the first references in the Bible that gives us the hope of life beyond the grave. The tomb does not have the final word. Isn't that glorious? If it did, if the tomb is it, that's it. It's just in this life, then we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 regarding Christians. He said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we root our hope as Christians, as believers in God, not in this life, but in the resurrection of the dead. He was gathered to his people. We also read here in the subsequent verses that Ishmael returned and Ishmael assisted his brother Isaac in burying his father. Now, we've previously studied the cave of Machpelah where Sarah was buried, and this spot is where the physical remains of Abraham and later Isaac and later Jacob and their wives will be laid to rest. But we know that's not where their souls will remain. All who have trusted in Yahweh will be raised to life, given glorified bodies, and will forever be joined with Christ when he returns. And so though his remains are there, that's not where his soul resides. Now, notice verse 11 tells us that God blessed Isaac after the death of Abraham, uh, and then he settles in the same place that Abraham had settled. But we really haven't heard from Ishmael since Genesis 21. And so verses 12 through 18 tell us what happened to his descendants. Ishmael also had sons. He had uh, 12 sons, and uh, he calls them princes in verse 16. And then he lived 137 years. Again, similar language, he breathed his last and died, was gathered to his people. So his people settled in a different place near Egypt. And notice the last part of verse uh, 
18 says he settled over against all his kinsmen. That had been predicted. He's going to be one who fights against everyone. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. But the text focuses on Isaac's line. So now as their father is laid to rest, we close one chapter, a big chapter. But if you remember, we started this back essentially at Babel, at Babylon. And it was from that table of nations that God chose for himself in his sovereign election, a man. And that man was Abraham. And now through his son, Isaac, the blessing would come. But Isaac has a problem. His wife, like Sarah, cannot conceive. So let's look at the second section, in the womb God is sovereign. Verse 19 says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, Pastor Micah taught us over the last few weeks from Genesis 24 how all of that came about. Remember, we learned that Isaac was meditating when he first sees Rebekah approaching And Pastor Micah pointed out what Scripture says about meditation. If you don't know what the Bible says about meditation, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon to get an idea of a lot of the New Age ideas that we would reject. Uh, And yet he's meditating, he's waiting upon the Lord, and that's a little bit of an insight into his character. Isaac's a man of prayer. He's a man who's surrendered to Yahweh. But now we learn he's 40 years old when all of this came to be. And the next verse gives us some new information about Rebecca. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, we've already learned that Rebecca was young. She was beautiful. She was related to Abraham's family. But now we learn she was also unable to naturally conceive. Interestingly enough, All three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will all marry women who are unable to conceive. The scripture says barren. And and so in God's providential wisdom, he chooses to bring his line of Israel in impossible means. What is impossible with man? And yet here we see more of Isaac's character. Notice he prayed to the Lord. He's interceding for his wife. He's lifting up her needs before the Lord. He's not complaining. God, why did, lament. God, why did you put me here with this woman who can't give me a son? He he brings tenderly her care and her concerns to God. And God answers his prayer and causes her to conceive. Now, I want to say this for a minute since we're on this topic. This is not normative. Because of the fall, we have death, we have disease, we have despair that have invaded creation. They are the invader. That has now caused this world to be upside down. And so what that means is because of the curse, because of the fall, that means children now don't always grow up to live long lives. That means disease can end a life unexpectedly. And for many of us, we have someone we can think of. That also means aging is a reality for each of us and what an unwelcome visitor aging is. It can also mean that wombs can become barren and not produce life in the first place. It also can mean that the life that is beginning to form in the mother's womb can be lost. 
Now, if sin had not entered the world, then I believe every womb would be open and every womb uh, would cause children to live uh, and be born and live into adulthood and we'd never have death. Death would be foreign to us. But see, the womb is mentioned just under 70 times in the scriptures. It's first mentioned here in Genesis 25, but, but notice on the screen how the Lord references the womb in Scripture. Notice that the Lord opens and closes the womb. Various Scriptures tell us this. The Lord knows and creates us in the womb. We are known by God. He's fashioning us together. In fact, Psalm 139 and Isaiah 44 mention that God forms, He develops, and He helps us in the womb. He's our helper as we're developing. Not only that, but we are called sinful even from the womb. It's not when we commit our first sin, so to speak, as some would say. Terrible twos. By the way, we've sinned a lot earlier than that. But, <clears throat> but also, Paul was, uh, he says in Galatians 1, he was called by God's grace and set apart from his mother's womb. God had a plan and had called him even from the mother's womb. Now, these references do not include the dozen or more references to the fruit of the womb, the blessing of the womb. Now, that is different than what our culture thinks about with babies. Today in our culture, babies are not considered a blessing, but an inconvenience. Children are not seen as assets, but as liabilities. They're not arrows in the hand of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. I've got a full quiver. A large family, no, the command to be fruitful and multiply seems like a nice suggestion if it fits our lifestyle. This culture is against children. Think about it. The World Health Organization reports every year around 73 million induced abortions take place globally. 73 million. That's 73 million babies who will never breathe air. Their lives will be snuffed out in the womb. By the way, that means so far this year, more babies from January into this first week of February have been killed than all COVID deaths since 2019. Seven times more babies died in the womb than who died last year globally of cancer. A mother's womb may be more dangerous than COVID or cancer. And that's not how God designed the womb. The womb is a place where God is fashioning life. It should be a place of protection. But see, God is sovereign over the womb. And because of the fall, sometimes genetics will close the womb. Sometimes God answers our prayers when we cry out to him as he does with Isaac and with Hannah in the scripture. Sometimes mothers will lose their babies in miscarriage or in a stillborn birth. And these can be devastating times because death has cut short the joy and the excitement of that, that child that we're expecting to be born. And we're not sure, what do I do with my grief? I don't know what to do. And many of you I know have experienced this, my mother included. I had two siblings who were miscarried, and I did have a sister who was born with many deformities, and she lived for about six months before dying. And so I know many of you, many families have been wrought with this suffering. But we believe life begins at conception, and that in the womb, Every child is created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And in the womb, they're engendered, male and female. And they're deserving of life, even as God is at work forming and helping them. It's strange that what I just said uh, is now controversial. And yet, that's what the scriptures teach. Now, here in Rebecca's womb, she begins to feel movement. And it's a lot more than just a kick or hiccups. 
Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And then it goes on to say, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. So God answers Rebekah's inquiry and explains there, there are two nations that are represented in these twin boys. Now, we do have a family, the Tobins, who are expecting twins, and we're excited for them. Pray for them. Uh, they should be being born in the next few weeks. But here we see twins being foreshadowed as two nations. The older, God says, will serve the younger, even though he's the oldest and the strongest. Both of these twins will be born with a distinct feature. Notice verse 25. The first came out all red, his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Esau means hairy. It's an appropriate name. And then verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Jacob's name means supplanter, usurper, heel catcher, the one who's going to overthrow you. So it's very interesting. Esau comes out very hairy. That's going to come into play soon uh, in, in a few weeks as we study Genesis 27. Um, but as he comes out, Jacob is holding on to his heel. And we're going to see how that is also a foreshadowing of Jacob's life. Jacob will end up receiving the blessing of his older brother. And even here at birth, he's fighting to be the older twin. Esau's hairy body will also come into play. But in the next two verses, we learn much more about these two. Verse 27, uh, first of all, Jacob or Isaac is 60 years old. So it's been 20 years of waiting. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to maybe just draw a column here. We have Esau to the one side, we have Jacob to the other. Esau to the left is the older, Jacob is the younger. Esau is the outdoorsman, He's the man's man, he's red, he's hairy, he's manly. He's probably tan because he's outside so much. He's hunting venison. If he had a house today, you'd walk in and in his study, there'd be that 10-point buck on the wall. He'd be grilling steaks for you. He'd probably have the medium rare. He's definitely on the carnivore diet. Okay? This is a man. Then there's Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is different than Esau. Jacob is quiet. Jacob is an indoor guy. Jacob is younger. He's probably fair-skinned. He's dwelling in tents. He's with his mom. He's a mama's boy. You could probably beat Jacob at arm wrestling. Let's be honest. Your teen daughter could beat Jacob at arm wrestling. <laughs> Esau represents the strong, masculine, older son, and it says that he's loved by his father. He's the boy that fathers want their sons to be. Yeah, he's manly. He's hunting. He's hairy. He's the oldest. He's strong. And Jacob is loved by his mother. Now, God's ways are higher than our ways. Even from the womb, God has declared who these two will become. God knows the end from the beginning. God's ways are higher than our ways. 
In fact, in two places in Ephesians chapter 1, that glorious chapter that displays for us the riches of God's grace in his plan, Paul mentions in two different places. He mentions the grace of God. He mentions the purpose of God. He mentions the will of God. Now, you and I, in our will, in our purposes, in our plan, would, like Isaac, place our hope in Esau. We, we would love Esau. You see, actually, even before that, we wouldn't choose to make a multitude, uh, a nation of multitudes from a line of people that can't seem to get pregnant. We would probably choose a totally different line. Let's get the strong stock, the big heritage. I mean, here's Ishmael. Ishmael, just in a few verses prior, he had 12 sons over the span of 20 years. Isaac, after 20 years, he's got a set of twins. But see, all of this shows us that God's plan includes his grace, his purpose, and his his will. And he does all things well. See, he shows his love to Jacob, and he rejects Esau. We learn soon that Jacob's name will be changed to Israel, and he will be the father of the nation that is loved by God. Esau will go on to become the father of the Edomites, and these are a people who are rejected by God. It was God's purpose that Israel's descendants, those to whom Moses was writing, would fulfill God's purpose according to his choice, not of Esau, but of Jacob, by conquering the promised land. And so we look at this and we wonder in God, the mystery of his will. Why did he choose Jacob, the sketchy supplanter, and not Esau? You see, God is sovereign over the womb. And friends, since God is sovereign over those first nine months of life, we can be assured he's in charge and in control of all that we endure for each and every other day. We can rest in his sovereign plan, that he's doing all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace through Christ. So we can trust him to use our lives for his glory, even when we're not sure why. If we had a plan for our life, it would be this, wouldn't it? And yet God has a completely different plan, and it's for his glory. Now, we get a small foreshadowing in these verses about the babies in Rebekah's womb, but in verses 29 through 34, we see that trouble is brewing as they get older. So let's look at this final section and see that in the flesh our desires will lead to destruction. Verse 29 says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, remember he's in with mom, he's, he's in the kitchen, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. We're not sure if he's hunting, if he's working, if he's a farmer, but he is working hard and he's exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. So his name, Moses says, was called Edom. Edom simply means red. So here he is after a long day of work, he's famished, he's exhausted, he smells the stew. If you ever come in after a long day of work and and there's food on, you're just, you're ready to eat. And so because he's exhausted, he doesn't have the energy to prepare his own food. And so he lives up to his name. He lives up to his name, Edom, because the stew is red. He wants it. Now look what happens, verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. You see, Jacob also lives up to his name. His name means supplanter, heel catcher, usurper. Here's the opportunity to take hold of the blessing of being the firstborn. He's been wanting this since the womb. Sell me your birthright now. Now, Spurgeon says that Jacob 
because God had decreed it before they were even born, Jacob didn't have to have this birthright sold to him. It was already his by God's decree. And so he didn't take anything. God had already said it was his. And so that's insightful for us to think about as we look at this and as we look at it in chapter 27. But 32 says, Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? In other words, I got to wait for dad to die before I get his blessing. I'm about to die. It's going to be pointless. He's that hungry. I mean, he is to the point where he believes he's at the point of death. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. He traded in the blessing of God for lentils. Now, the birthright, the blessing, is very different in Eastern culture than just writing your will here in the West. Very different. Uh, If you want to jot some verses down, Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. Deuteronomy 21, 17. 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. So these two verses tell us a birthright involved a material and a spiritual dynamic. The son who received the birthright received a double portion of his father's inheritance. That's why it's so significant that in the story of the prodigal son, the parable there, Jesus said the younger was saying, give me my inheritance. Basically, dad, I want you to die and I want double of what my older brother deserves. So not only that, but the one who received the blessing, the birthright, they now became the head of the family and they became the spiritual Uh, leader, if you would, when their own father died. And so Jacob knew this birthright is valuable. I want the birthright. Because in his family's case, that means he would be the rightful heir of God's covenant with his father Abraham. And again, we've mentioned that includes land, it includes the nation, and it includes being in the line of the Messiah who would crush the serpent. So notice both of these twins are driven by their desires, both of them. Jacob is driven by desiring the honor, the recognition, the promises. But he's blind to the consequences of destroying his brother's life. Esau was also driven by his desire for hunger to be filled, his desire for food. He's blind in his desire to the consequences of forfeiting God's blessing. Now, at the opportune time, Jacob will steal his brother's blessing, even though God had decreed it for him and it's his. And what ensues is his brother will now be a threat to his life for many, many years. And we'll see that story unfold over the next several months. But in like manner, there are those of us, not there are those, there are all of us who are in Christ, who, though we're now in Christ, we also have earthly desires that can quickly become disordered and they can drive out God's blessing in our own lives. And these desires must not be coddled or suppressed. I'm just going to keep an eye on I'm going to keep my desires at bay and on a leash. No, they must be put to death. Barnhouse says this. He says, quote, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities. They choose time rather than eternity and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. He says, men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Then he goes on and says this, multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. 
and multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men still sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. Wow. You see, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, and we look at the life of Esau and Jacob, we consider the sobering words of Romans chapter 9, where Paul says this. He says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in other words, God's election wasn't because Esau nailed it. Well, because he nailed it, I'm going to choose him. Well, because Jacob nailed it, actually, let's go with Jacob. Let me change my mind. No, before they were born, Paul says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the, uh, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written elsewhere, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, it shouldn't shock you that God says he hated Esau. He rejected Esau. What should shock you is that God says, Jacob I loved. You see, like Esau, from the womb, God declares we will not receive his favor. Instead, because we're sinners in Adam, our disordered desires go to prove that we have forfeited his blessing. But unlike Esau, God's purpose in election declares us in Christ justified. Like Jacob, we are undeserving of God's steadfast love and blessing. But unlike Jacob, we don't have to deceive in order to receive it. We just simply believe. The firstborn over all creation, the Lord Jesus, has bestowed the blessing upon us. Why? Because we are in him. But see, the firstborn was not blessed upon the cross. He was cursed. The one who authored life had his own life snuffed out in excruciating pain and the blackness of God's wrath. That beloved son took our place, became our substitute, and he descended to the place that Psalm 22 says he was a worm. And because of his vicarious work on our behalf, on behalf of rebel sinners like you and I and Adam, the Father has now bestowed upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he's rescued us from sin and from death. We put our faith in Jesus the Christ, who the scripture says was blessed of the virgin's womb. He has saved us. And the Holy Spirit, who's reordering our disordered desires, is even now producing sanctification in us as we trust Christ and as we crucify our flesh by faith. And so we can study a passage like this and we can study the life of Esau and Jacob and we can wonder, why didn't God choose Esau? Because of his sovereign choice. Why did God choose me, a rebel, a sinner? Because of his sovereign choice, because of his grace and his kindness. So as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, in just a moment our ushers are going to come and distribute the elements. And if you have not partaken, received communion with us as a church before, we have two cups, the juice is on the top, the bread is underneath, and we want to invite all who trust Christ to receive these elements as a means of grace today. These are not the literal body and literal blood of Jesus, but there is, in a sense, more than just a mere token memorial or just a reminder. Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me, but 
though there's not a literal presence of Christ, certainly Christ is spiritually present with us. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper this morning, this is an act where our hearts are once again refreshed in the work of the gospel, in the work of the cross. And and we celebrate two truths simultaneously, don't we? We celebrate that our sins have been paid for by his horrific and substitutionary death. As he declares from the cross, it is finished. He has taken the penalty in his passive obedience. He has fulfilled the law perfectly in his active obedience. And so he says, it is finished. And we can say yes and amen, it is finished. But secondly, we also celebrate what a foretaste this is of a wedding feast to come. We remind ourselves that our life has been provided for through his victorious resurrection. And so this morning, why would he choose Jacob? Because of his grace. Why would he choose us? Because of his grace, because of Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. We'll pray and then the ushers will come as we sing this song. How deep the Father's love for us will hold on to those elements and I'll lead us in just a moment. So gracious Father, we thank you this morning that as Paul would recount this story and the hatred and rejection of Esau who on his resume had everything going for him in the world's eyes. Yet Lord, according to your election, according to your sovereign choice, according to the mystery and the purpose of your will, you chose Jacob. You expressed your love to the one who is undeserving. And Lord, the same is true for us. You have expressed your hased, your steadfast love and kindness to those of us, all of us who are undeserving. We are not worthy of salvation. We're not worthy of receiving eternal life. We are worthy of the wrath of God. And yet that wrath was poured out upon the Son and against sin. And our dear Savior has saved us from the wrath of God. He has saved us from our sin. He has sanctified us from these disordered desires. And he has made us a people. Joining us who were once far off, been brought near through the blood of Christ and joined with God's people. What a joyous truth this morning. You've done the work. No more work needs to be done. We rest all of our hope in the finished work of Christ. So Lord, as we consider the cross this morning and as we look to the bread and the cup and we look back at your finished work we just thank you this morning that you saved a wretch like me amazing grace how sweet the sound we love you and we thank you and we receive this time and we give this time to you in christ's name amen thanks for listening to our podcast Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.